Welcome to the Iron Mike Keenan Show. The stories behind the stories from the hockey world as witnessed firsthand by the man who was there serving as head coach for eight NHL teams, including the Philadelphia Flyers and Chicago Blackhawks in the Stanley Cup Finals and the New York Rangers as they captured the Cup and ended their 54-year drought. Add to this Iron Mike's time served as head coach in the KHL in Russia and China as well as winner of the Gagarin Cup. And you've got a perspective on the sport few others have. Coach Iron Mike is joined by Hockey Hall of Fame journalist, award-winning author and commentator Scott Morrison. Here they are, Iron Mike Keenan and Scott Morrison. Welcome to the show, everyone, and uh, a good Sunday afternoon, wherever you're listening. And uh, radio show number 15 and podcast, which of course is timeless, so Good Sunday, Monday, all every day of the week for our podcast listeners, show number 36 there. And Mike, how are you doing today? Excellent, Scott. Just excellent. Enjoying, uh, you know, some tremendous weather here in Key West and and sunshine most every day. So it's not a ba- bad place to be in troubled times. Good. Well, and hopefully we're turning the corner as we talk about every week and uh, show up slowly but surely. And, uh, We'll see where we get to. So before we get into uh, our main topic of the day, which would be revisiting some stories and highlights uh, from your career behind the bench, management and coach, and uh, just a few of the uh, kind of news of the day items, if you will, and your quick thoughts on uh, you know, Montreal Canadiens were a team, and you've been involved in it on both sides. They made a coaching change earlier in the year. Claude Julien, who you know, was nine five and four. Nine five and four when he got let go. Since then, now they've had a rash of injuries and all the rest of it. Since then they're eleven, twelve, and five under their interim head coach Dominic Ducharme, fighting for their playoffs live playoff lives, lost a couple of games this weekend to the Calgary Flames, uh, your one of your old teams. And uh, what do you as a coach, what do you I guess as a manager too, but what do you when you look at situations like that? What goes through your mind? Like you see a guy with a winning record gets punted, and then nothing really changed for the better. Yeah, that's really hard to understand. And, and uh, uh, Mark Bergevin, who played for me in St. Louis as well, I was surprised, and sometimes uh, that he made that move uh, and, and replaced a very experienced winning coach. Uh, with a coach that didn't have the experience, and and uh, Kirk Muller got bounced at the same time, so I'm not sure the dynamics of what always goes into those decisions. Sometimes, Scott, it's the ownership stepping in and think that they they uh, can resolve a problem, what they perceive to be a problem. And and uh, again, I go back to this adage or saying I've had for my entire career: if if owners would own and managers for manage and coaches coach and players play without crossing the lines of everybody's responsibility then it'd probably be a cleaner slate for most everyone but coaches are put in a very vicarious uh, situations at time and it's it's hard to understand why they fire a, a guy like that who had a, a pretty solid record if you if you look at it overall now they're under 500 since that changed so uh, Sometimes you just, it's the dynamic, it's crazy business at, at times, and there is no explanation. 
Well, and sometimes, as you say, it's owners stepping in. Sometimes it's uh, somebody has to be sacrificed to uh, deflect the attention and and the blame. Yeah, and particularly uh, Montreal market, and uh, um, you know, you and I have talked about this before. Liking or not liking the coach, uh, I mean, uh, I don't buy it. The coach has got a responsibility, and and you as a player has a responsibility, and. And but players today more than ever have a lot of power, and uh, so it's uh, a different time, I, I guess, in terms of what you deal with. But it's hard to say. I mean, if you look at the other change, and we brought up Calgary as a team that's pushing them now, well, they, they go back to uh, old school Daryl Sutter from a young coach, so. And it's uh, you know he's pushing them along pretty hard, and 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 they're adopting a, a new I guess type of culture in that organization now. So it's that that's just the the, the antithesis of what took uh, place in in Montreal, the opposite. And and uh, now it's given maybe this is going to give Calgary a chance to make the playoffs. How important is it to the dynamic of a situation where? You know, you mentioned Calgary and, you know, Jeff Ward was the previous coach and I think first NHL head coaching. But, you know, you got a guy who obviously was fighting for his coaching life. And then you bring in a Daryl experienced guy, one cups. He's brought in, given a three year contract and he ain't going anywhere. And how important is it that the guy who who's calling the shots ain't going anywhere? Well, I think it's important to to for the ownership to uh, and the management group to to make that point, and that brings everybody to attention. Uh, it's you know, and this is where it fluctuates. When you name somebody who's an inexperienced NHL head coach as interim, that just leaves a crack open a little bit. The doors open a little bit for confusion. And uh, there is no confusion in Calgary. They know who, who the boss is and uh, that he's going to be there and probably until he wants to leave. So, uh, you know, that was the ownership group making that choice, I'm sure, with the influence or, or with a discussion with the manager. But uh, there's just a completely different scenario that, uh, that they've set up that's probably going to work for them. Okay, uh, we'll move on. Uh, Sidney Crosby, unbelievable player, obviously. And uh, on Saturday, uh, earned his 55th point of the season. He will play a maximum of 55 games this year. Missed one already. Um, And that's 16 consecutive seasons in which he's been in the NHL where he's averaged at least a point per game. The only other player to do it from the start of his career for that long was Wayne Gretzky, 19 seasons. Mario Lemieux, his owner, former Penguin star, did it for 15 years. What does that achievement say to you? Well, first of all, we know how good Sydney is. He's won Stanley Cups in Pittsburgh. Uh, it means to me that he's consistent. He doesn't fluctuate. His game is, is uh, at a top level as is the case and was the case with Wayne Gretzky, as you mentioned, or Mario Lemieux or Gordie Howe. Uh, but that consistency, even though he's gone through uh, 
some periods of uh, injury uh, and missing games, but uh, uh, his professionalism uh, comes to the surface in his skill level and his ability to produce and generate uh, the offense that uh, he's noted for uh, on a very, very consistent basis and for a long time. So that means that uh, he's stayed relatively healthy, but at the same time, he's a real, real uh, example of, a, of a, one of the best professionals in the game. I believe in the numbers, 1.28 points per game he's averaging Connor McDavid right now not as many years obviously many seasons 1.38 so see how that number plays out as time marches on uh I'm gonna put you on the spot just uh, one last thought about Crosby you always hear the comparison Crosby Ovechkin if you had to make yeah, one pick who do you great, take that's a great rival uh and they both have their their assets uh I think that uh, you're looking at, at two players, and Crosby, I think, is a little bit more flexible in terms of positioning. Uh, you know, Ovechkin plays the left wing primarily and is a great power forward and a great goal scorer uh, and has won cups too. So it's a pretty narrow choice in terms of who you would pick, but. Uh, you can't screw that one up. It'd be tough to go wrong on that choice, whatever one that you make. Are you, uh, notwithstanding those two players, but just in general terms, are you a guy, if you were making a pick, leans to a center over a winger? I think so, yes, because normally they can play either wing and or center, which I think adds a little bit of a dimension uh, to the to the decision-making in terms of the choice you would make. And uh, just one other note, uh, 38 years ago uh, today, the New York Islanders won their fourth straight Stanley Cup. And as we know, they came very close to making it five in a row before finally losing to the Edmonton Oilers. Now you came in your rookie season with the Flyers was 85, but you were very familiar with that Islander dynasty in Al Arbor. Very much so, uh, and Al was a very, very uh, good leader, obviously, a great coach, and a real gentleman. Uh, I was a rookie coming in to, into Philadelphia, and uh, I would go into the island, and maybe it was because I had a relationship with Scotty Bowman, and, and Al played for Scotty in St. Louis, I believe, but... Uh, he would always invite me into his office before the game, and we'd talk about hockey. Not necessarily about his team or my team, but just about some of the rules or what's going on in the league or what do you think of this rule or that rule or the changes or what are you doing for traveling. And, and we were in the same division, and uh, it was interesting. Uh, that My first rookie year when we ended up winning the President's Trophy, we had to beat the New York Islanders in the playoffs to move on and that to me was quite a feat for a young team uh had we had so much respect for what they had accomplished uh, with al's coaching and the great players they had with you know pot and trache billy smith you go on and on bossy uh and to be able to beat them uh as you said they had just completed five consecutive runs 
to the Stanley Cup, winning four of the five, four consecutive. So um, it was a, a real interesting challenge for a young group and a young coach. So they, as you mentioned, they went to five straight finals. They win four, almost win the fifth. That was a lot of hockey to play over those years, uh, as you well know from uh, going deep in, in playoffs and having long series. Then Edmonton wins four out of five. They had another one in 90. Um, and I think the most we've seen since then is two in a row. Will we ever see another quote-unquote dynasty, or is it a different kind of dynasty? People talk about Chicago back in the early, you know, mid-2000s with their getting to finals and winning a couple times, L.A. winning a couple times. Is it just going to be different now? I think it's different because of the uh... – the, the the cap and the money that you can distribute. and For example, uh, Chicago did well, and, and they won some cups, but uh, they wanted to keep two superstars, so they had to pay them extraordinary amount of money. Uh, and um, Taze and Kane. Taze and Kane, yeah. And so that just changes the dynamics of what you can do it's a tricky business for managers to build a dynasty because the top players get so much money, then can you get lucky enough to have some young kids come in that are really great players, but you don't have to pay them that much in their first uh, in their first contracts. So it, it would be difficult, you know, to win three in a row now is, is you know, Pittsburgh, you have to give them credit. They, they did a good job too, and they've kept. They try to keep a couple of superstars, or have with Mal Crosby and Latang, for example. And they fluctuated with goaltending. They, they they lost an excellent goalie, and were able to still win. So uh, the dynamics are completely different than the teams that were built uh, by Glenn Sather in Edmonton and Bill Torrey and the Islanders. The timing and and this, the money f structure was so different. Uh, you could have those star players for many years and tie them up and stay within a bite. And at the time, as you know, there was no cap. So it was a different, a different, uh, a different era. Yeah, there was no cap, no salary disclosure, and uh, two-way contracts abound and all the rest of it, a different time indeed. Um, so if you're in a situation today, but like, Pittsburgh's been through, Chicago went through, you mentioned Taze and Kane, and, uh, you know, L.A. had issues battling the dollars with some of their players. Like, how tough a tug-of-war is it if you're a manager where you've got guys like that who have led you to cups, they deserve to be rewarded, you know at some point it's going to handcuff you. you, you know fans will be upset if, if they leave too soon, just how tough of a balancing act is a juggling act more than anything is that well it really is and i think uh you know there there is there is the uh you know the achievement and winning the cup and then the reward for it uh and it's also you have to bring in the dynamics of the agents where they can now leverage their top players to get them top money and it's always always a difficult balance you know do your do your negotiating in the summer but you there's always the argument i'm only going to be able to play for 
10 years or 15 years or my career is going to be over. Um, but as we're taking the Blackhawks as an example, but the, that franchise goes on and on. So, you know, and you, sometimes the managers will ask those star players to take a little less so they can bring in some better support. So now they try to work the player like, do you want better players around you? And if you do, you got to take a little bit less uh, to make this happen. So then you get these uh, hard negotiating agents in there and say, step in and say, no, you deserve this money. You won the cup. There's no guarantee you're going to win it again. Uh, so we want to get you top dollars. There's a lot of interesting dynamics uh, involved now at every level. The players, the coaches, the managers, the owners. The, the, the dollar itself has a big influence on the industry. And the industry has grown. As you know, uh, Gary Bettman and his staff, Bill Daly, and the rest have really generated a lot of funds for the NHL in terms of along with the Players Association, to, to build this industry into a billion-dollar industry. And you obviously you get a, a motion involved as well, and probably that's more so, well, obviously from fans and more so from an ownership level, undoubtedly, that hate to see the star player leave if, if it's too soon. Absolutely, because there's a uh, uh, relationship built now by these owners uh, with the fans who have a big influence on their budgets. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's still, a, a, as we call it, asses in the seats business to a certain extent. Uh, you know, not right now because of COVID, but uh, the NFL, for example, they, they don't have to have anybody in the building and their budget is completely covered by television. And hockey hasn't got to that point yet. They need... They need the fans to support and and pay some of the bills. So one other thought before we'll take a quick break and then leap into some uh, great stories that you have to share about various stops in your career. But just the, the general managers met this past week and oddly enough, because they couldn't really travel and get together in the same room, what used to take two and a half days and include a couple of rounds of golf, they managed to get through the meetings and, two hours, two and a half hours, but one of the topics was schedule options going forward. And without getting into all of that, one of the options is getting back to the way it used to be uh, in the NHL. And, and I guess a potential option is, is staying the way it's been during the pandemic. And there's a lot of people I know up here in Canada, we've got the all Canadian division and you end up playing teams nine, 10, 11 times at one point, that seemed like a great idea. Now some people are getting bored. What are your thoughts on sticking with that strict divisional setup? Well, it's interesting. I go back to when I started again, the Patrick division, for example. Uh, we played those teams more often uh, than the other the other divisions, other conference. And, uh, and then, we, you know, we're young enough if you like to go back to the original six or they they only had six teams and you, you played each other multiple number of times and what that did as you know the rivals uh, in particular for example between toronto and montreal were uh, you know fierce so and the fan pace uh, fan base uh, uh 
uh, split throughout the country. As you know, the two popular teams in the country, the, the only teams in the country. So it was, it, it's an interesting dynamic. And, and I think a lot of it, Scott, will be uh, money-driven. Whatever is going to generate the most money uh, for the league is what they'll decide on. And maybe be the most expense smart on the flip side too. Exactly. Cost efficient. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, on one side, it's great. Uh, for instance, in Toronto, they see Connor McDavid and 11 times, and uh, but you don't see Sidney Crosby and Alex Ovechkin and some of the other great players around the league. So it's a give and take. It is. It had to be under these circumstances, so we'll all enjoy it and uh, look forward to the playoffs that are coming out. So we'll take a break and uh, come back, and we'll start a trip down uh, memory lane with uh, some great stories from Iron Mike as the Iron Mike Keenan Show continues after this. Now back to the Iron Mike Keenan Show, the stories behind the stories from the hockey world. Here's Coach Iron Mike Keenan and Hockey Hall of Fame journalist Scott Morrison. Welcome back to the show. Uh, just about going to talk about some various stops uh, in, on your career, Mike, and uh, let the listeners know that uh, we're going to drift through uh, the second half hour of the radio show, which will be also our podcast. And uh, because there's been so many stops, so many stories, this will be a theme that will probably carry on for a, a couple of weeks. So uh, something for everybody to uh, look forward to. So we're coming up uh, in a few minutes, the, the conclusion of the first half hour. So we won't get into too many stories at this point, but maybe just Maybe tell the folks uh, how it was that you got involved in coaching in the first place. Uh, great question, Scott. I was uh, a graduate of two universities, St. Lawrence University and University of Toronto. And then from there, I went and played minor pro uh, in the w uh, WHA system as a draft pick of Vancouver, end up playing in Roanoke, Virginia, uh, winning a championship. And then I went back. Uh, after playing to uh, Toronto area. And, of course, there was a, a, a big senior A league at, there at the time uh, involved many of the communities around Toronto, uh, such as Barry at, at Galt at the time and Aurelia and down to Kingston and Belleville and, and Napanee and, and a lot of different locations in Brantford and and so on, and uh, I was recruited to be a playing coach. That's what you did back then. Uh, nobody had a full-time coach, or they always have a playing coach, so I, I saddled up fundamentally with uh, Gary Milroy. I don't know if you remember that name. Played for the Marlies at one time, and a good hockey mind. So uh, the people in Whitby recruited me where I was gonna coach, and, and uh, uh, the Whippy Senior A going back to the Whippy Dunlops winning the world championships. So that's how I got started in coaching. Uh, so I was a playing coach to begin with. I was a high school teacher as well. So I had a teaching background and uh, some a lot of interesting uh, people playing for us at, at that level from 
college grads to ex-NHLers to uh, minor pro teams to uh, people coming out of the WHA and and uh, there were some great teams. Uh, uh, Barry had a very strong team as well. Uh, uh, Sillaps uh, was uh, uh, coaching up there and, and they had some great championships. You know, at one time to to win a championship at the senior A level across Canada, the Allen Cup was a big deal. And at one time, the Allen Cup winners would represent Canada in the world championships. And I alluded to the Whippy Dunlops, Harry Sinden being the captain, and and Ren Blair, who was became a manager in the NHL, was the manager. So, um, you know, it, it was a big part of, of the community that's now not as strong as other venues and uh, expansion of the American League, for example, but uh, guys that were still good players, even players that were uh, playing senior A opted out not to go to the NHL because uh, they just couldn't make enough money. They made more money doing other jobs and and still enjoying hockey, and, and there was a stipend paid to the players, so it was a real interesting start to my coaching career. Okay, we'll come back with more of that. And, and as you mentioned, Johnny Bauer was a classic story of career in the American Hockey League. He kept saying no to the Maple Leafs because he was making more money on and off the ice playing in Cleveland. But it was a much smaller hockey world back then. So uh, we'll be back uh, shortly with uh, our second half hour of the, the radio show and the podcast. And uh, look forward to more stories on the Iron Mike Keenan Show after this. Welcome to the show. Beautiful Sunday afternoon, hopefully where you are. And uh, we've got some great hockey stories to share with uh, the coach and the general manager, Iron Mike. And uh, where do you want to start, Mike? It's uh, a long and storied career. And well, uh, we might as well, a lot of interesting stops. We might as well start right from the beginning as we uh, just left that first half hour about the senior A coaching start. Uh, so I was uh, coaching senior A and teaching high school uh, in Don Mills to begin with, where you live, and then went over to Forest Hill. But um, I started coaching, and the real first coaching job I had, Scott, was coaching box lacrosse uh, for the Don Mills High School, and we won the, the city championship in lacrosse. So I got the bug for coaching. I loved it. I was then the senior A coach, and I had characters like Eddie Shack uh, coming into the, the room and asking me why we were actually doing drills. And Carl Brewer, who, who was a, a bright guy, would always philosophize about uh, his relationship with Punch Imlach. And, and then uh, we had many, many players. As I said, it was uh, uh, Bruce Sterno was one of our goalies. Well, he ends up being a judge. He is, was a graduate from University of Toronto Law School, and, and uh, many teachers were playing in the in the league, uh, and uh, it was an interesting dynamic. So, uh, to and, and you know something that was really important at that time in my career. I was now coaching men. I played, uh, you know, I went to Vancouver's uh, training camp. I was drafted by the WHA by the Blazers and end up playing in the Ronick and we won a championship there. But prior to that, uh, I was invited in, in the first uh, training camp that the Atlanta Flames had. 
and and uh, Cliff Fletcher invited me to to attend there after I graduated from St. Lawrence University. Went on, went back to grad school at the University of Toronto, and then became the the, the coach of the of the Whitby Senior A team. So uh, I was coaching men, and then uh, I went and I broke my shoulder very badly playing one night in Barrie, and uh, very badly. Where I just ended up coaching the rest of the year behind the bench. I couldn't play anymore, and then the following year, uh, now I'm coaching high school hockey, and I became the convener of high school hockey so I could coordinate the practice times and the game times to coincide so I could meet the requirements of the senior A commitment. And then I went from there, Scott, to coach uh, junior B in Oshawa, the Legionnaires. We win two uh, Metro championships there. So now I'm coaching the high school team, teams. I coached... uh, uh, not just the, like I mentioned, I coached the, not just the hockey team, but I was coaching the basketball team. Get this, I was actually coaching the women's swim team as well at Forest Hill. So uh, coaching, I loved, it didn't matter what I was coaching, I loved it, and teaching. So uh, one thing led to another, and, and uh, as I said, with some great stories about the characters and the men that I coached in senior A and then went on in coaching high school uh, boys and girls in various uh, team sports and then the lacrosse team sport and Don Mills prior to Forest Hill and then coaching in, in Oshawa and I had some great experiences there and funny experience in all of them. Uh, you know, uh, some great players. Dale Howard, Chuck, God bless his soul, played for me as a 14-year-old in Oshawa and was by far our best player and then goes on and and uh, then I go to uh, coach uh, in in uh, uh, Peterborough. So, you know, some funny stories of Peter. Larry Murphy, I can tell you a little story about Murph. So I go in and I'm pretty straightforward, pretty uh, tough on him. The prior coach was Gary Green. who was a real players coach. And uh, now Iron Mike shows up. And, and uh, so I'm checking on curfew and making sure they go to school every day and because I had the school experience in high school, teaching high school, and so Murph, uh, I call his landlady, his his house, his landlady, and she asked, "Well, uh, uh, Murph isn't home yet, but he'll be home very soon." I said, "Okay, great. Have have him call me." But in the meantime, I jumped in my car and drove to the house, and uh, she said, "Well, he, he, I guess he was sleeping. He's been in all night." I said, "Well, that's funny." I just t- uh, touched the roof of uh, or the hood of his car and it's red hot. So you tell Murph to be on time and be, get home for curfew. So uh, they were always trying the, the tricks of the trade and coaching the, the national team in Finland and having players trying to get away from curfew. I don't know if the players do that today, but these are young. Ro- uh, we were in Finland and, and uh, Team Canada. I picked up a few players and, I had to move some of them from the, the first floor because they're sneaking in and out of their uh, hotel uh, windows and missing curfew and, and enjoying the nightlife as we were playing. So uh, different dynamics in different, uh, in different times. And then going from there to now going coaching men again uh, in Rochester. Uh, some real interesting stories there. Ron Chipperfield was a top, top player was sent to me in my first year. 
Scott, we had four team sponsors, Buffalo Sabres, Quebec Nordiques, Calgary Flames, and Los Angeles Kings. And every general manager wanted all their players playing. Now I'm a, a rookie coach in the American League, not a complete rookie coach of coaching men because of my senior A experience and playing a little bit uh, in the minors. But uh, so Ron Chipperfield, for example, my office was down the hall, comes walking. It was like slap shot. He comes walking down the hall. He's got his shin pads on and his jock through the crowd after the warm-up. And he comes in and he says, Mike, I can't play anymore. I said, Ronnie, what are you doing? I said, you're making $150,000 at that time. It was unbelievable to play in Rochester. He says, I can't do it. So he went back to the dressing room and then he went off to Europe and had a great career there. So some interesting stories. A fellow named Ron Carter came in to play. We were, like I said, really shorthanded. We went through 75 players that year. And uh, we just had finished the warm-up and now we're going out to play in this Fella comes walking with full gear, didn't have a warm-up, was late getting to the rink because he was being moved from one town to another. I don't know where he's coming from, but he was being assigned to us. His name was Ron Carter, but at the time it says, son, I don't know what your name is. I don't know what you play, but good luck. So, you know, it was interesting dynamics uh, that uh, I went through in terms of the different levels of play and then, uh, Scotty Bowman would, would always get in his car. He'd drive down from Buffalo, watch us play from time to time, and get on his car phone and, and then cross-examine him about everything I did on my on his way home, which was a 70-minute drive. Uh, so it was uh, some interesting times in terms of coaching development. You asked how I got into coaching. It really began because of teaching and my love for the game. I'd, I'd love to be involved in the game and, had a lot of positive experiences winning, you know, championships in the minors, championships at the University of Toronto, uh, championships in Peterborough and Oshawa. So uh, uh, in Rochester, winning a championship and then going on to the NHL. So it was interesting to, to see the different dynamics and, and, and teaching uh, young folks. I also end up after Rochester before the NHL going back and, coaching University of Toronto and teaching in the university. And that was a, a great experience to go back as a player. And then as a coach, I believe there's only two coaches that won as a player and a coach there, and that would be Tom Watt and myself. But uh, Tom being the most successful coach in the history of the University of Toronto. But people wouldn't know this either, Scott. And maybe I'll ask you, who do you think was the most famous coach from the University of Toronto? A Canadian. Oh boy! Anyway, I won't stump you, or yeah. you, but it was Lester B. Pearson. Oh, very good. So Lester coached the University of Toronto. So you know Joe Kane and Judge Joe Kane and a number of people. But uh, well, so, for American listeners, Lester Pearson went on to be Prime Minister of Canada. So. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And the airport's named after him in Toronto. So, yeah. So uh, so it, it, it was a. a a great experience of, of, and from the very beginning, even when I was back at St. Lawrence University, or even before that when I was playing junior hockey, I used to help out with in Whitby the, the local summer schools, and then the universities would have summer schools, and Upper Canada College, which is a very prestigious uh, boys' school in the middle of Toronto, Tom Watt would run hockey school. So the teaching part of it 
I really enjoyed. And that's, I guess, what drove me to continue to learn more about the game and all the international experiences I had, all the great teams and players. And that was the genesis of it. And that's a pretty long-winded answer. <laughs> so I got to know, so Eddie Shack was a famous Maple Leaf, played for the Rangers. I believe he had a stint in Boston. Eddie the Entertainer was his nickname. And, oh, he had, was in Buffalo as well. I remember that. Punch brought him there. Punch him like the legendary Leaf coach and general manager. What was Eddie Shack when you talk about characters of the game, and especially for a young guy and a, you were a young player coach, what was that like? Well, that was very interesting because, as you know, he was the entertainer, but not only on the ice, off the ice. So uh, he was always kibitzing with the – he loved being around the game. He loved being around the, his teammates. And, and it, was, it was a little bit intimidating – on a very small level, but to be coaching these famous uh, Maple Leaf players that I grew up watching win the Stanley Cup, and then now not only those, I had uh, Desjardins who was playing for Quebec Nordiques and uh, Paul Raymer played play for Vancouver Canucks and Pete Vipon played for Oakland and, and Howie Menard uh, played, uh, I think it was Detroit. And, and, and then I, the mixture of, uh, of the other great senior A players that had some experience in the league. And it was a little bit, it was a, a situation I had to be a quick learner. And Eddie was always challenging the coach, even though I was his teammate. Always, you know, why are we doing this drill? This is crazy, Mike. And, and everybody would start laughing. And, and uh, I'd say, well, I'd, this is a, uh, around the world, we call it. And he said, oh, I've been around the world, Mike. <laughs> And, uh, you know, name of drills, and he'd just be, he would be out of control, quite frankly, in the room and on the ice and off the ice. But he was a big man. He loved to play. He could skate like crazy. And uh, uh, he always wanted to just have it a real, particularly now he's out of the NHL. He just wanted to keep it light. He wanted to have a a, a workout with the guys and have a couple of beers and tell stories. So uh, an interesting character, as you know. Well, and uh, we'll take a break and come back with uh, some more stories about characters. And uh, uh, when Eddie played for the Leafs, uh, one chunk of his time with the Leafs, his former teammate, Red Kelly, Leonard Red Kelly, was the coach. And Leonard didn't like being called Leonard. And that's all Eddie would Red say to him on the bench as he'd turn. Leonard, when do you want me on the ice? <laughs> Leonard. <laughs> he was a character on on the bench during games as well. I. I can completely understand it and uh, recognize uh, his behavior, if you like, his attitude. And it, 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 it was actually fun. Yeah, he was uh, was always about having a good time with uh, with Eddie Shackman. You didn't want to fight him because he'd do anything to win. So, okay, we'll take a break and we'll come back uh, with some more stories about the characters along the way and uh, the Iron Mike story on the Iron Mike Keenan show. Back to the Iron Mike Keenan Show. The stories behind the stories from the hockey world. Join the conversation now by calling 814-272-9700. That's 814-272-9700. Now, here's Coach Iron Mike Keenan and Hockey Hall of Fame journalist Scott Morrison. Welcome back to the show. And you uh, 
just heard it on the intro, the stories behind the stories, and we're getting a, a few of them uh, that we can tell on the airwaves. And uh, certainly from the early years of your career, Mike, and we're going to go through all the stops, but uh, you'd mentioned back in the day, we'd, we talked about the legendary Eddie Shack, and just before we forget about him, Carl Brewer, who was another legendary NHL player and part of the early days of the Players Association, ultimately did a lot of things off the ice in terms of cleaning up the Players Association, but was a terrific player himself and played in Europe and played for you uh, uh, in, uh, in Whitby. Yeah, Carl was a really cerebral guy in terms of his approach to the game. The quite opposite to Eddie. So I got these two ma famous Maple Leafs in the locker room. And one is Eddie is the jokester. And then Carl's trying to evaluate everything we're doing, asking questions about every drill and what does it mean. And and uh, so, again, the dynamics, I, I go back to Punch Imlach. He had, uh, like all of us, a room full of different personalities to deal with. And and I, I've sampled some of the uh, great, a great entertainer and a great player, uh, both good, uh, having an impact on the Maple Leafs. But Carl had, you know, he had a real, a real huge impact on on that championship uh, team in in Toronto. So it was quite interesting to, and all the other dynamics, as I said, of different different uh, players. That was a real melting pot, Scott, to have all those different organizations in your locker room from all NHL backgrounds at the time uh, and to bring them together. And we had a pretty good run in Whitby with that group. But uh, uh, And for a very young coach, uh, it was uh, quite interesting. You know, I was in my uh, mid-20s at the time, so... Uh, as a great start to a coaching career. And then I go to Forest Hill and Forest Hill after the Don Mills uh, lacrosse, I didn't, I didn't coach hockey at Don Mills. I coached lacrosse, box lacrosse. So then I go on to Forest Hill and uh, we have a 7 a.m. practice at the Forest Hill arena uh, two, three times a week, which uh, made it really convenient because we just walk across the road and go to the school after and they had great facilities at, at Forest Hill. As you know, it was a private school uh, prior to going to the Toronto Board of Education. But So I have a group of players, and, and we, those kids did really well in, in the, uh, in the, in the uh, Toronto Hockey League, or the high school hockey league. But one character I have was Ken Daniels. Ken Daniels became the famous broadcaster for the Detroit Red Wings, and, and particularly when they're winning the Stanley Cups. And he'd be sitting on the bench broadcasting in between shifts the game. So we were playing whoever we were playing, North, North York or it didn't matter. Uh, he'd be broadcasting the games. And I said, at that time, I said, Dan, you should be a hockey broadcaster. So he said, I think I will. And of course, he had a great career. But I also had a group of players, and they were from families that were very affluent for the most part, as you know, Forest Hill uh, community. And I walked in one day, and they weren't playing very well. But, but I had so much fun with them. I was really a different coach because, you know, when I coached kids like that, they're not professionals. It's supposed to be fun. but uh, Or it's a different level. When you go to junior, there's an expectation. They want to go on to pro. They want to win. 
Anyway, I said, guys, I got good news and bad news for you. I said, the good news is you probably all could be owners one day. The bad news is none of you are going to play in the NHL. So, but I said, most of you could probably own. They come from the most affluent backgrounds. So it was a lot of fun to, to be involved with them. And, and then moving from there to, to as I said, the, the junior clubs uh, after that in, into Oshawa and, and Peterborough. But uh, some great, uh, great stories throughout. So you mentioned that, you know, at that high school level, fun is the number one thing. You want to be good, but you want to have fun while you do it. And I, and I think that is the same at, at every level. So when did you become not Iron Mike, the nickname, but Iron Mike coach? Probably I took a more serious approach uh, and progressed with that approach um, when I went to... I'd say major junior A, because now th these players were being drafted. They wanted a livelihood, if possible, of playing in the NHL. So I had a very structured approach. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, that intensity, again, it, it was diverse. Uh, I had a, a Memorial Cup team, won the Ontario Championship, and uh, a team that uh, played exceptionally well defensively, and and I wasn't quite as hard on them as I continued to be with as I got to the professional level. But after that, I go to Rochester. Now these guys are pros; they're being paid to play. Uh, the Peterborough kids were getting a stipend and room and board, but now they're getting paid to play. And uh, and the expectations that Buffalo Sabres had on me is that you better develop players to be able to play in Buffalo. And we had many guys that played for me in Rochester graduate and go on and play in the, for the Buffalo Sabres. So that was doing my job. And, and um, <laughs> uh, I had some uh, great battles with some players. Randy Cunningworth. I don't know if you remember Randy. He turned out to be a great pro. But he came as a kid, and he was come out of Ottawa 67. So I knew him from junior. And, and uh, he didn't want and he didn't expect to be in Rochester. He expected to go right from the 67s to the Buffalo Sabres. So he came down, and we had a practice when you were a rookie. And we went to uh, a, a practice arena near Lake Ontario, uh, or Lake, yeah, Lake Ontario, uh, that they would bring the pucks. So Randy finally came around his turn. There was five rookies on the team for like first year pros. And so Randy said, I'm not carrying the pucks. I'm not taking them. He thought, you know, that's not his job. I said, Randy, it's once every month that you have to take a bag of pucks. So yeah, you are taking them. And then the other part of it is you're going to bring them back. And so the trainer after practice, and I was, again, I'm trying to answer your story a little bit or your question. So the trainer says, we got a problem. I said, what is it? He said, Randy went out to get all the pucks, but he shot them all in the stands. He's not bringing them back in the bag. I said, oh, we'll see. So I went out and that's, you know, I, that's what I was firm. Like I said, Randy, you're not going to do that. Or, you're going to go around the rink now and pick up every puck and put them in the bag. 
which I made him do. And I said, don't ever do that again because you're embarrassing yourself and you're a good guy. But it's not my fault or the team's fault or your, or your teammates' fault that you're here. Scotty Bowman sent you here to, to learn to become a pro. So let's be a pro. So, you know, that, that evolved. Then I went to the University of Toronto. And again, a different environment, a different teaching environment, a different student. I mean, these were, I had lawyers and dentists and doctors and engineers and business degrees and people that were super highly in grad school, like many grad school guys, as was the case when I played at the University of Toronto. We had the same mix. We had all kinds of people from grad school that were going to become professionals. So my approach to, with them was a lot, a lot different. I can remember teaching them in the Jump fall. Jump in on you, Mike. We're yep. running short on time. Okay. But, uh, hold that thought and uh, more stories from the early days of Iron Mike next week on the Iron Mike Keenan Show.